In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have a great episode lined up for you, um, including an amazing interview uh, with current uh, delegate and candidate for lieutenant governor, Elizabeth Guzman. Uh, of so Virginia, that's an by the awesome way. interview. Of Virginia, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, you're, if you happen to, been, to be one of our... Uh, uh, Finland listeners, first of all, <laughs> shout out to you. Yeah. Um, but also, uh, yeah, it's, it's specifically for Virginia. Um, so yeah, one of the things we're trying to do is give some, a little bit more like kind of local content and context about this particular race. Cause it's super important to us. And these are people that are in right in our backyard and they've got really interesting, cool ideas that can be implemented on a state level. So yeah. these are things that can be extrapolated to any state that you're in. So yeah, Dele- yeah, delegate delegate Guzman is she, she's wonderful. We had a great interview. Uh, yeah. I, I really hope you like it. Yeah, absolutely. And so our other topics today are discussing uh, the situation with Andrew Cuomo in New York, um, and the reaction of of the Democrat. Party to that. And we'll also be talking about uh, the universal basic income or UBI and doing a bit more of a, a deep dive on that topic. Um, and as always, if you feel inclined and would like to support us, you can find uh, the Perspectrum at patreon.com slash the Perspectrum. And uh, if you want, if you find value in this show and uh, want us to keep doing it and want to get access to uh, cool bonus content, uh, throw us a buck or two. Yeah. So to start us off, Michael, why don't you give us the COVID numbers? All right. As usual, we have a nice depressing start to the show. Um, (laughs) So worldwide, there have been 121.6 million cases, which is up from 118.6 million cases last week, which is about a 2.5% increase in total cases. Um, This is a little bit larger of an increase than we saw the previous week. Um, so we've actually seen a little bit more growth, um, and kind of accelerated growth, uh, worldwide, which is definitely the wrong direction to go, but not necessarily too surprising, uh, considering that, you know, the vaccine effort is underway, but it's, it's far from comprehensive at this point. Um, so far 2.69 million people have died from COVID, which is up from 2.63 million last week. So that's about 60,000 uh, more deaths than the previous week. Um, and, and that's about the same increase week over week in deaths that we saw the week before. Um, so far, uh, in the world, 5.1 doses have been administered for ever about every 100 people, uh, which is up from 4.1 doses last week. Um, so about a 24% increase in, in the total vaccinated population, but still clearly a, a ways to go. In the U.S., at this point, we've hit 30.3 million cases, uh, which is up from 29.9 million last week. Um, that's about a 1.3% increase in total cases, which is pretty damn low. Um, 
and it's about 400,000 new cases in one week. It's crazy to me that 400,000 new cases is low. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, how do we get here? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, uh, it's interesting, though. I, I, I was a little bit worried when I was looking at these numbers and kind of reflecting on uh, some more anecdotal evidence about people's behavior and attitudes towards COVID. One of the things I was worried about was whether people are, you know, feeling more secure and being more cavalier. And so if they're getting tested much less, which might lead us to discover fewer cases, but actually uh, would be a problem. Um, but I looked into that and it turns out that people are, are getting uh, tested a little bit less, but not significantly less. Hmm. And most of the decline is actually a decline in positivity rate, which is now down to about 5%, which is about a third of its, of its peak of the last six months, which was in January. Yeah. So that's actually a really good sign. People are still getting tested and they're just getting infected less. Yeah. That being said, though, we've reached 550,000 deaths in the U.S., which is up from 542,000 last week. Um, so again, that's, you know, fewer, like a, a smaller per day death rate than we've seen for the past few weeks. It's now, this past week, it was about 1,100 deaths. Um, but again, even though that's trending down, that's still, that's still over 400,000 deaths a year. Yeah. If you annualize that rate. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Another thing that I would like to quickly note is I want to kind of semi-retract something that I said last week. So mm. after Michael finished reading the COVID numbers last week, I made a comment about how uh, Joe Biden was going to be given more credit than he deserves in the vaccine rollout. And I mean, part of what I meant by that when I originally said that was just simply the fact that the vaccine happened to be finished around the time that he became president. Mm -hmm. And in terms of development for the de development of the vaccine, that's something that he doesn't necessarily deserve credit for. Trump doesn't necessarily deserve credit for. Yeah. Uh, it's the scientists and the companies that created it. And where the, while that is still true, there is something that I read this week that actually made me want to come back in and sort of semi walk back my statement. So apparently the U S currently has the, uh, is fifth in per capita vaccine distribution, mm -hmm. which is amazing. Yeah. And a huge part of that is the fact that Biden's main priority has been vaccine distribution from the COVID package and also from uh, organizing various organizations associated with the federal government. And if he actually does obtain the goal of every adult who uh, wants to get the vaccine, getting the vaccine by May and hopefully getting us to the point where we're at least in the ballpark of herd immunity by summer. I mean, that's impressive. That is mm -hmm. really good. And as, as much as I love to criticize Joe Biden for a hundred different things, that's something that he's truly being impressive on right now. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I don't know if a generic Democrat would do it better or would do it worse. But the fact of the matter is Biden's the one who's president. That's what he's doing. And it's good. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Cause like, I mean, there, there are like all kinds of mitigating factors, right? Like even, even the actual impact that a leader can have on this, on this kind of thing. Yeah. Like he's not driving a van around, but like <laughs> he shouldn't be, he should be yeah. administering. But anyway, exactly. like, you know, there are all kinds of mitigating factors, but ultimately 
we can see a huge change from the last administration to this one. And so you know that the quality of the leadership and the, the organization that Joe Biden has built around this just is really high. Yeah. And so the fact that they've been able to accomplish this so quickly and stand up their uh, their vaccine efforts so fast is a testament to really yeah. great leadership. Yeah. Because um, at this point, 22% of the population of the U.S. has received at least one dose. Woo! 22 percent um that's 110 million doses administered in the u.s which is like pretty freaking amazing um and at this point 12 percent have been fully vaccinated so and and each each of those numbers is up four percent from the previous week so that means that if we keep if we keep increasing the population uh that has been vaccinated by four percent each week Will it reach herd immunity, at least with the first dose, in like the next three to four months? Yeah. Um, but that only works if you actively seek out the vaccine, yeah, right? For sure. So as soon as you are able to va- get the vaccine, you should do it. There's a lot of misinformation floating around. I actually, on my YouTube channel this week, I posted this video encouraging people to get the vaccine. And I was really surprised by how many people in my audience were all like, oh, I'm super skeptical of this vaccine. Oh, they're, you know, the the leaders talking about the vaccine, they're lying to us and stuff like that. Um, We have done uh, some work and and research on this particular podcast. We actually had my father on, who's Mm -hmm. an anatomy and physiology professor, to talk about the science behind the COVID vaccine. If you are somebody that is hearing a lot of things about the COVID vaccine that is making you skeptical. I would encourage you to go back and listen to the episode. Uh, The episode is called talking to a scientist about COVID. Mm -hmm. I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to that episode and um, to, to take the time to, to educate yourself about the new approach with this specific vaccine. It, it is safe. It has been, it has been tested. um, Mm -hmm. And it's, really important for the sake of protecting yourself for the sake of protecting those around you to get this vaccine as soon as you possibly can. There's no yeah. microchip in it and <laughs> you know, it's not going to make you autistic nor is it going to give you better cell service. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a great point. Like I want to, I want to double down on that particular point. It's not enough because of the importance of this vaccine to make arguments about the vaccine from a position of ignorance. Yeah. Like you can't say it's, it's not enough to just say, well, we don't, I don't, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't really read about this vaccine, but I don't trust it because you know, it was developed so fast or whatever the myriad of, of conspiracy yeah. theories about it. You, it is incumbent upon you to do the research, to answer your specific questions, to help you get comfortable or not. If you're still uncomfortable, like if you have specific good reasons to be uncomfortable, then, you know, make the choice that you think is best for you. But it is not acceptable. The one thing that is not acceptable is to say, I don't know, and I'm not going to find out. And because I don't know, I'm not going to get the vaccine. Yeah. Another resource that I would recommend checking out, uh, which is a podcast that when my father was on, he also promoted. Uh, It's called This Week in Virology. If Mm. you want to learn more about the vaccine, if you want to learn more about COVID, um, this is a bunch of virologists sitting around talking about it, giving you information based on their expertise. So great, res- another great resource to look at. 
And if that doesn't sound like a good Friday night, I don't know what does. <laughs> so no, now Nathan. that we've been now that we've been talking about uh, Joe Biden doing a pretty good job so far with the uh, the dealing with the COVID pandemic, let's talk about another executive who has not been doing a good job and has also been doing a bad job in not being an overall garbage human being towards women. That was an excellent transition. That was really great. Thank you. I thought, I, thought, I, I mean, it, it felt super smooth and supernatural. Yeah, supernatural. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, not so just natural. Specifically, supernatural. Yeah, supernatural. Yeah, your, your transition was the superhero of this podcast. Da, 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 da. Um, so specifically, we're talking about Andrew Cuomo. And um, we got some requests from our audience to talk about this particular issue. I think... Um, it's kind of top of mind for a lot of people for a few reasons. One, there's a bit of whiplash because Andrew Cuomo was being praised pretty widely for his response to um, the pandemic, his transparency of his administration and, and all of these things in, in helping uh, to make New York City a, a safe place during the, during the pandemic, where eventually they got test positivity rates way lower than most of the rest of the country and, and transmission rates way lower as well. Um, and then at the same time, you get a couple of these huge scandals that have fallen into the news that we'll talk through um, that are kind of like leading to a pretty, a pretty harsh backlash. And so we wanted to like take a minute to break down these issues. Yeah. Um, first off, I did want to give a little background on Andrew Cuomo because Unless you're paying attention to this, and unless you live in New York, you probably don't know that much about him. Yeah. Like he's definitely more, definitely more than any other governor, I'd imagine. Apparently, <laughs> but, he has uh, a nipple ring. Um, really? Yeah that that that, wow. that was a that was a huge meme on the internet. Like that makes him a progressive in my book. <laughs> <laughs> no, like people uh, like they they saw his his shirt and it was bunched up around his nipple and it looked like mm -hmm. there was the outline of a nipple ring. <laughs> and that was like that picture was shared all over the internet. Wow. Yeah. Deep fakes, man. They're everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so he's been the governor of New York, New York state, uh, not the mayor of New York city. Uh, even though like, you know, what else is there in New York, uh, since 2011, dude, as a country boy, <laughs> as a no, country you're right. boy, <laughs> you're right. You're right. They've got some really great skiing. Um, <laughs> he has been in politics for like a huge part of his professional life. He was in Clinton's cabinet. He was the attorney general of New York, uh, before becoming governor and he's been governor, you know, for a few terms now. Um, and he's got a lot of positive press as we mentioned over COVID stuff, but he's also had like a pretty good impact. He, he's been the governor over a pretty, uh, transformative time in in New York in general. So he saw the over, the legalization of gay marriage in New York, the legalization of marijuana, um, some uh, gun control legislation following Sandy Hook. Um, he's committed New York State to following the Paris Climate Accords, even if the the U.S. doesn't. Um, he's also delivered Medicaid expansion under the ACA and is committed to an increase to fifteen dollar minimum wage. Um, overall, like it seems like. Up until recently, and and if you're not aware of these allegations against him, he's been a good leader of New York. And the reason I wanted to set that all up is to emphasize that you can't be 
uh, a good leader who's a scumbag and get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and also, I think... Before we get into the sexual harassment slash misconduct allegations, uh, I do want to address another really important scandal that I feel like mm-hmm. did not get enough uh, enough attention, and that is the scandal regarding nursing homes. So, yeah. as Michael did talk about, um, there are reasons to suggest that Cuomo did a fairly decent job in the COVID pandemic overall. Uh, like you said, positivity rates going down uh, were, were lower in New York than they were in other places. Uh, he had um, fairly good uh, uh, mandates regarding masks and uh, regarding social distancing. And also, I mean, I know that this shouldn't matter, but it does. His COVID briefings kind of felt really refreshing. Like, again, I know that it, shouldn't matter, yeah. but when we were having a president who was just like routinely downplaying COVID, it was kind of nice to see, you know, the governor of New York, which is a major uh, state in the United States, kind of sit down and say, all right, let's talk about COVID. Let's talk about how important it is. Yeah. I mean, he received an Emmy for his COVID briefings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that being said, at one point, he made a really bad call that mm-hmm. resulted in a lot of a lot of people dying yeah um and that was the decision to basically say that um covid positive patients would be returned to nursing homes so mm-hmm. if you if if you've been following uh the if you've been following uh news about covid then you know that some of the most at-risk groups are people that are older and you know who's in nursing homes primarily people that are elderly so not only did Andrew Cuomo basically say, all right, it's okay to let uh, people in hospitals back into nursing homes, people that test positive for COVID uh, out in, back into nursing homes. But when it resulted in an uptick of deaths, he covered it up. Yeah. And that's, and he, to be, that's the worst part right there. Yeah. To be clear, he didn't just say, we sh- we, you know, they can be let back in. It was... They, uh, nursing homes were not allowed to deny re-entry to patients yeah. solely on the basis of their COVID positivity. They were required to yeah. let them back in. So initially, um, they were reporting that there were about uh, 6,432 deaths in nursing homes from the virus. Mm-hmm. However, that figure only listed those who died from the virus at nursing homes, not yeah. those who had been in nursing homes and, also, and then died in hospitals. So once those were added, the tally became came closer to 9,000. Mm-hmm. And then updated data eventually put that number at 15,000 people. So 15,000 yeah. people in uh, you know from nursing home residents of nursing homes or other long-term care facilities died of COVID. And they yeah. specifically manipulated the numbers in order to cover that fact up, in order to cover yeah. his ass. And look, the argument was basically that, oh, well, we don't want to give Trump a reason to investigate us. Look, Trump was an idiot. Trump sucked at his job. But that's no excuse. All right. Yeah. You lied to the you, you lied to the people of New York. You made a bad call and you covered it up to, to cover your own ass. 
That is not okay. And that right there, I think, like, even before we talk about the uh, the accusations of sexual assault, that right there, I think, warrants his re- resignation and or impeachment and removal from office. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really strong case. Like, he, like, not only was trying to cover it up internally he was manipulating the narrative he was manipulating the story and when people found out about it he he pretended that the cdc is the like had the recommendation to allow people back into nursing homes who were covid positive which they didn't um he like he tried to like get uh to like pressure people in the department of health not to uh, put out this data, like all of this stuff. And it was only by the work of the attorney general releasing a report about these about these COVID death findings that we actually got this information. And to be clear, it's standard, like, it's not like, oh, like some people, you know, report their nursing home deaths one way and some people do it another way. It's just a difference of opinion. It's like standard practice when a person from a nursing home dies of COVID that it, it is counted among yeah. uh, those deaths. So yeah. And then it didn't, and just, and uh, essentially tried to cover it up and lied to his constituents just for political expediency. Yeah. That is unforgivable. Absolutely unforgivable. And now <laughs> we add to that the fact that so far, at least six women have accused him of sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. Um, several of them, it was, uh, it was unwarranted comments. Like one of them accused him of basically making the age old joke of, Hey, my hands are big. Do you know what that means? Which is just disgusting. Um, he was accused of, uh, unwanted kissing. And there was one woman that actually accused him of basically feeling her up under her blouse. Mm hmm. And uh, thus far, he has um, he has denied all of these allegations. However, there is some photographic evidence of him touching women inappropriately. Yeah, yeah, like like holding their faces and like kissing them without their consent and stuff like that. One one of his accusers, uh, a woman named Charlotte Bennett, uh, actually produced 120 pages of records and other documentations to back up her claims. Mm-hmm. So. Basically, she was showing uh, things like uh, texts and emails at the time, uh, at the time of the incident in which she was talking to uh, her, her, her parents and friends about the incident. On top of all of this, uh, the attorney, one of the attorneys representing um, some of these women has actually stated that there have been several other women that have anonymously reached out to her and said, yeah, he, he did that to me too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they're, they're afraid to come forward because they're afraid of the retaliation, which, I mean, that right there is an important note because whenever these types of allegations come out, the classic yeah. defense is always, oh, this is politically motivated or, oh, this person is just trying to get attention. You do realize that women like... Uh, Blase Ford mm-hmm. have gotten death threats and had yeah. to actually move several times because she was doxxed. That's what happens when a woman accuses a prominent figure of sexual misconduct. I'm mm. not saying 
that these shouldn't be investigated. I'm not saying that we should just, you know, accept it, move on, and that it shouldn't be investigated or looked at. However, it is important to note that it that, that when a when a woman comes forward to accuse someone of sexual assault, when anybody comes forward to accuse someone of sexual assault, they are putting themselves in a lot of danger. They're putting themselves yeah. at risk. At risk. Yeah. Because that's just the nature of rape culture at this point. Mm-hmm. So, look, it's important to investigate it. It's important to it's important to wait to um, make overarching statements, to make overarching judgments about the situation until evidence has come out. Mm-hmm. But at this point, six women have come forward and there are other women that have anonymously reached out. There is some documentation of it happening and there is photographic evidence of him touching women in seemingly inappropriate ways. So I, what else is there? I mean, yeah. I mean, we still need to investigate it, but I mean, things are not looking good for him. And the thing is, this issue is being treated relatively appropriately. Yeah. So we're, we're seeing the uh, New York Attorney General, uh, Lilita James, uh, hired and deputized an external law firm to conduct an independent investigation into the allegations. Yeah. Um, the New York State Assembly authorized an impeachment investigation, which is the right thing to do. Um, we're seeing we're seeing uh, Democrats and uh, in the Senate and the House and the state legislature, as well as the president, either come out and say that they support the investigation or come out and say that they uh, think that there's enough evidence that he should resign. Like, yeah. This is the right response. They're taking this issue seriously. Like we're holding Cuomo, uh, a, a, a long held Democrat insider to the standards that we, w- that we expect others to be held to, which yeah. is heartening to, for me to see. Yeah. And a lot of prominent uh, Democrats from New York have already called for his resignation from mm-hmm. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to both of the senators, uh, Schumer and, and Gillibrand, mm-hmm. have both called for uh, his resignation. And he, he, he released this defense, I think it was like, he was either on a radio show or a podcast, in which he basically claimed that um, these, were tar- these allegations were targeting him uh, and po- they were politically motivated by people that don't like the fact that he's an outsider, a political outsider. Dude... Your father was the governor of New York. Yeah. Like, you were a Clinton staffer. You were an attorney general. And and how long has he been the governor of New York? Since 2011. Since 2011. Ten years. Dude, you're not an outsider. You're not an outsider. You're, like, yeah, he's not even, like, uh, like philosophically or politically an outsider. Yeah. He's, he's a Democrat. He's just a de- Democrat yeah. insider. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it is his defense definitely leaves some leave something to be desired. He also tried to say that this was an example of cancel culture, which in case you need any more evidence of the fact that the term cancel culture just does not mean anything now. Mm-hmm. I mean, there you go. Like yeah. the fact that um, he's conflating first off, an important scandal regarding nursing homes in which his administration Mm -hmm. made a terrible decision that led to thousands of people dying. 
and then, and then tried to pretend they never and then, happened and then tried to pretend it never happened and then six women coming forward to accuse him of sexual assault with documentation that's canceled like the fact that we want to impeach you over that that we want to remove you we want you to resign that's cancel culture dude that's consequences yeah the fact that there are that that you know prior to the me too movement this stuff was just overlooked and swept under the rug was a defect of the system yeah. not a feature yeah. it is not a defect of our current system that there are consequences for heinous actions regardless of uh, what your political party is yeah and i think it is also important to note that the democratic party overall has been responding to this fairly well now yeah. i've critiqued the way that democrats have responded to me too allegations before i still am kind of disgusted at the way they handled joe biden's allegation mm -hmm. but this right here was a i mean this this was the the right response you know people calling for investigations to find the truth um people looking at the evidence and coming to the conclusion that regardless of his own standing in the democratic party regardless of his political power you can't let somebody get away with gross negligence lying and sexual misconduct you mm -hmm. just can't and now it's time for one of our more positive segments tips for good so nathan why do we do tips for good every week well we do tips for good every week because jolene 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 I'm begging of you, please don't take my man. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. The way you, the way you said it, like, like it was like a soccer mom yelling across the street to like someone she had a friend she hadn't seen. It. Hey, hey, Jolene, Jolene. <laughs> and and oh, also to, the world a better place. Yes, to make that's, the world that's a better place. Yeah. That's, yeah, a, that's, that's totally a thing. Um, mm -hmm. So, Michael, what is our tip for good this week? Our tip for good this week is to watch out for COVID-related inflation when deciding where to put your money right now. Um, so I'll break that down a little bit. Um, currently, there is uh, a shortage of a bunch of different goods because COVID has uh, interrupted and disrupted international and local supply chains. So things that you would normally be able to get are more scarce. So that would be, uh, if you've taken Economics 101, that would drive up the cost of those goods as people bid up prices. At the same time, um, economic stimulus has led to uh, people spending similar amounts of money, or even in some cases, spending more money uh, than they had before the pandemic, um, which in a lot of ways is good. But if you've taken economics, you know that increased demand also drives up prices. So what I'm saying here is that there is some evidence that we've already started to see inflation in certain marketplaces um, as a result of these combined economic factors during COVID. For example, one study found that used car prices in certain markets have increased up to 17% from a combination of lower imports of automobiles and people actually going out and buying cars a lot more. So that's a pretty crazy finding. 
And my, my immediate thought is, wow, I'm really glad I didn't buy a car with my stimulus money. <laughs> and that's what made me think of this tip for good. Because a lot of people are going to be tempted to take their stimulus money and go, you know, if you don't if you don't have an immediate economic need to spend it on food, you might think about spending it on something else, maybe a bigger purchase. But we're seeing is inflated house prices, inflated car prices. So it's actually probably not a great time to spend your stimulus money on something like that, because ultimately you could be paying much more than the market would normally demand for those goods. Um, so if you can, put your stimulus money somewhere uh, where it can do you a little bit more good. If you can save it, save it. If you need to spend it on consumer goods, spend it on consumer goods. Um, if you can put it towards retirement, put it towards retirement. But, or if you want to like spend it on other stuff, like do that. But know that a com combination of economic factors could be driving up prices, and so you're probably going to be paying more than you would have uh, if you'd spent that money later on. And that's tips for good. So for our next segment, we want to tackle uh, an issue that has been on a lot of people's minds lately. We've done a little bit of a pilot program in the U.S. with stimulus, uh, and it's it's the subject of a lot of uh, of changing opinions. I found. Um, and that's the universal basic income or UBI. Yeah. And when Michael talks about changing opinions, I am definitely included in that. Me too. I, I will admit that when I first heard about the idea of universal basic income, um, I thought it was kind of ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I, I will admit that. Like, even as the, the leftist that I am, when I first heard about Andrew Yang's campaign... Uh, and and how it was like, oh, there's this guy who's running on giving a th people a thousand bucks a month. When I first heard about that, I was like, oh, okay, well, that's a fringe dude. Like, <laughs> what's this guy doing running? Like, who who even is this guy? Like, I'm I'm sure you know, I I was like, I'm sure he's a nice enough dude. I mean, it's it's a nice sentiment to think that people uh, should be given a thousand bucks a month. But I mean, come on, that's just like. That's ridiculous. I mean, if if you're if, if you're giving somebody a thousand bucks a month, I mean, doesn't that disincentivize them to work? Mm -hmm. Like, aren't you basically saying, "Hey, you don't need to work anymore. We'll give you a thousand bucks a month, and you know, if you can find a way to live off that, then just you know, stay home and watch Netflix or some something like that." Mm -hmm. And 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 the thing is, now when I say all of the things that I used to think about universal basic income, it kind of makes me sick to my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, those are yeah. intuitive kind of economic arguments about yeah. something like that, that kind of feels like a subsidy. Yeah. And then I actually, uh, I actually did start watching Andrew Yang giving interviews, doing interviews. Mm -hmm. uh, there was one that he did on Fox news with uh, Stuart Barney, um, who is, Total partisan hack. Yeah, I bet and, that was a, a hostile interview. <laughs> yeah, um, but like, but like while I was sitting there, I was thinking, oh, this like this guy is gonna tear this poor dude apart. I was thinking Stuart Barney's gonna tear this poor dude apart. Um, I think I seriously overestimated Stuart Barney in that moment, but <laughs> but like Andrew Yang gave his case extremely well. He he laid out the facts. He laid out the math and his argument against the whole if people are given a thousand bucks a month, they won't want to work anymore was basically seriously. 
Like, yeah, people will be satisfied with only a thousand bucks a month. Like, this is just a cushion. A thousand bucks a month is a cushion. Like, who's gonna who's gonna just not do anything if they only have a thousand bucks a month? I mean, yeah, yeah, you might have some people here and there, but for the most part, people are going to use this as an extra cushion. They're gonna mm-hmm. use it in order to to subsidize their bills, to to subsidize, you know, uh, to, to to subsidize their debt. And I don't know. He defended his case very well. I was like, okay, keep talking. Mm-hmm. Keep talking. And he kind of went from being this really obscure candidate that I just, that I kind of just laughed at to being my third choice in the democratic primary and someone who, uh, if he runs in, in 2024 is, has a non-zero probability of getting my vote mm-hmm. <laughs> depending on who he's running against. So let's talk about kind of the, uh, the evidence behind UBI, the cost of UBI and overall why it could how it could actually work yeah yeah that makes sense and i think the evidence is the big part because ultimately a lot of the arguments against ubi um, and many of the arguments for it are kind of based on whatever perspective you already have yeah like if you're already a fiscal conservative who believes in the free market you're going to be predisposed to thinking that this is more like a uh, a subsidy, it's going to disincentivize people to work and all the, all of those things. And if you're already in favor of fairly large, fairly like high social safety net and, and welfare programs and a large like, and, you know, not uncomfortable by high government spending, you might be more okay with this. Yeah. And so I think it's really important for us to like, try to get as evidence based and data driven approach to UBI as possible. Because ultimately, what? the point is not just to give everybody money, the point is to solve, to truly solve these deep, deep economic problems. One quick caveat that I, that I want to make to, to Michael's statement, which I actually found this really interesting is that there actually are a large amount of libertarians that actually support uh, universal basic income, which Mm. when I first heard that, I found that found that super surprising, but (laughs) when it was explained to me, it it made total sense. So the idea is universal basic income is basically uh, it, it's it's money that you could potentially use in order to cover things that would normally be specified as aid by the federal government. So basically, mm-hmm. the idea is um, you don't need student aid. You can just use your UBI to do it instead. Now, yeah. as somebody who is a social Democrat, I would still say, like, why can't we have both? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I do think that, that that is a really good argument. That is a really interesting argument. So this is money that you're not being told how it's going to sp- how, how you're going to yeah. spend it. You're not being told what's going to happen. It's in essence, it's like it's like a tax rebate, you know? Yeah. And I mean, that's how it's administered a lot of times is in the form of in the form of a tax cut or a tax rebate. Um, but ultimately, you're right. It is the most like civil libertarian approach to welfare. It's not just food. That, you know, you, you, like when you're using your SNAP benefits, if you're a person who receives those, you can spend it on certain food and not others. Like, I don't think you can buy alcohol or energy drinks or anything like that with your SNAP benefits. So that's a pretty paternalistic approach to enabling people to eat food. Yep. Um, so I, the fact like, I was on so, SNAP once. Yeah, yep. fair enough. And yeah. And so like the idea that of giving people money to spend according to what they think are their best needs is is a vote of trust in those people. Um, and in a way, to your point, like the tax rebate, it's kind of just like giving people back 
uh, and in some ways like redistributing, but like getting people just uh, a benefit from their government that they can then use. It's actually not a particularly paternalistic approach. Yeah, absolutely. It's not paternalistic libertarianism. <laughs> Or paternal libertarianism. <laughs> Libertarian paternalism. Oh. <laughs> For those of you who didn't listen to last week's episode, that was, uh, that was on the docket. It was good. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about some of the studies and evidence regarding this. Um, let's, yeah. let's start by talking about Finland, Michael. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Finland ran this study um, for two years um, between 2017 and throughout 2018, during which the government gave 2,000 people um, age 25 to 58 monthly payments uh, with like no strings attached whatsoever. The only uh, the only weird thing about this compared to uh, other um, UBI implementation programs is that these people were all unemployed. Um, so it was kind of like a test of a UBI in the form of like a automatic like uninsured uh, like employment uninsurance or insurance program. Um, and so they gave them 560 euros a month. Um, there were no means testing. It was totally uncondi un un unconditional. Um, and then the study compared uh, unemployment or employment status and self-reported well-being of these recipients against a control group of 173,000 people who were receiving unemployment benefits. So basically, they're testing specifically the question of disincentivizing unemployment. These are both unemployed groups. They're both getting benefits. Like, how does UBI increase someone's disincentive, like being them being disincentivized to work or not? And uh, what are the what's the well-being impact here? And so what they found is that between November 2017 and October 2018, the people who received the basic income um, averaged. Uh, more days working than the people who received unemployment benefits, which kind of makes sense. You're receiving this income regardless of how much money you make. So unlike unemployment, which actually has a natural disincentive to getting a job um, in some ways, a UBI does not. There's only upside for getting more income. Um, and when surveyed, uh, people who receive this basic income on uh, uh, reported much higher levels of well-being, mental health, cognitive functioning, and higher levels of confidence and optimism about the future than people who are on unemployment benefits. So basically, one like some of the main findings are people were better off, and there wasn't a there wasn't any impact or negative impact on people's willingness or likelihood of working. That's really interesting because. Basically, what you're saying is that if you give people a benefit where if they're unemployed, they get that benefit. As soon as they're employed, they don't have that benefit anymore. In essence, you are incentivizing them to remain unemployed because yeah. that, ex that extra money is helping them. Yeah. However, if we say that if it's a universal basic income, which means that right now you're on. So right now you're unemployed. We're going to give this to you. And you realize, oh, okay, I have this money. I can use this to get another job or to, to get a job. And when I get that job, I will have that job on top of the benefits that I have right now. Mm -hmm. So it's just it's just more money that you're making. Yeah. That's really interesting. Because yeah. I mean, Let me break it down this way. Let me break down the math like this. 
If you make a hundred bucks a week from unemployment, right? You work zero hours, you make a hundred bucks a week. If you get a job where you work 10 hours a week for 15 bucks an hour, which is a great paying job, you get $150 a week, right? So now you're working 10 hours, but you've only made 50 more dollars. So really, as a result, your incremental benefit is $5 an hour. Hmm. Whereas if you just pay someone an, uh, a UBI, all of a sudden, they're getting an incremental $150 a week. You're tripling their income benefit from actually getting that job. Hmm. Interesting. Because because so one of the criticisms that was made on Andrew Yang's initial universal basic income was this one stipulation that basically people who were on some type of welfare mm -hmm. uh, would basically get to choose have between to choose. the unit. Yeah, they'd have to choose between the universal basic income and their welfare check. And in some cases, mm -hmm. the universal basic income might be more. In some cases, it might be less. But they would they would choose between those. And I remember I remember seeing that and kind of thinking, well, that's like that's a criticism. That's mm -hmm. I don't like that. I don't like the yeah. fact that you're you're kind of taking away this advantage. But now I'm actually kind of seeing with that. I'm kind of seeing the logic there, mm -hmm. because if it if it stays a universal if it stays universal if it's a universal basic income and it stays there regardless of whether you get employment or you don't get employment then you have it as aid if you are not employed but you can use it in order to help yourself get gainful employment mm -hmm. the one the one argument though that i would that i would kind of make against that though is what about people that uh, have some type of welfare because they're unable to work so like disability yeah. Like, sure. so you don't necessarily want to incentivize them to, to work. So, so in that regard, I would say that it might make sense to have it potentially replace unemployment, Yeah. but it shouldn't replace things like, like disability, you know? Yeah, I agree. I mean, ultimately it's in the name it's universal. It goes to everybody equally and yeah. it's basic. Yeah. You know, if something that accounts for special circumstances. For example, some studies found that among uh, differently abled populations, um, uh, the UBI wasn't nearly as helpful in increasing things like employment, education, things like that, because there are much more there are much higher barriers. So as a result, it's it, it, might, it makes perfect sense. You know, if you uh, it's like the old it's uh, the old thing about, uh, you know, measuring a fish by its ability to climb a tree. Yeah. It's like, well, if you give everybody the same benefit, it's a really good, it's a really good baseline program. But for something like disability, it's yeah. not sufficient. Yeah. Although then again, you know, I guess even looking at unemployment, that, that does still, that does still sort of imply that if you are on unemployment, that is automatically going to mean that you are not going to want to get a job, which that's not always true. So no, I'd say so that's I, not true. Yeah. So no, I'd, I'd say that's a complicated issue that I don't think I have the answer to right now. Yeah. And importantly, in the Finland study, people still got jobs when yeah. they're on unemployment. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, they got them more readily. Otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another study 
that I want to address is a study that happened in Stockton, California. So this program is referred to as the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, or SEED. Uh, it was founded in February of 2019 by, um, at the time, Mayor Michael Tubbs, and it was completely funded by donors. So what it did was it chose 125 people that were living in neighborhoods that were at or below the medium household income. So a little bit different from the way that it was sussed out in the, uh, the Finland study. Uh, these weren't just people that were unemployed. Some of them were, some of them weren't. Um, and they were given an unconditional monthly stipend of $500. What's interesting is the, so the most common argument against universal basic income is that it reduces the incentive to get a job. You know, we, we just talked a lot about that. What this study actually found, there is a 12% increase in full-time employment among hmm. people that, that got these checks. And the reason for that was that these checks gave them, like, gave them a nice little cushion. All right? Hmm. It made it... So, so, so think of it this way. If you are unemployed and you're desperate for money, you'll take any job that comes your way right? Any, any, um, uh, mm. chance that you have to have any type of employment, regardless of how shitty the pay might be, you'll take it. Yeah. But, even if you're not working full time, you might yeah. be working really little hours. Exactly. But if you're given a cushion, then you're more likely to be like, all right, let me try to, let me, I, I'm, I'm going to hold off on applying to this part-time job and see if I can get a full-time job. And what it turns out is among people that were getting, uh, th that we're getting this benefit. That's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. uh, it also decreased their feelings of anxiety and depression. It gave them more time to spend with their family. Yeah. Um, and the other argument that's often used is, oh, well, if you give people unconditional money, they're just going to go out and spend it on, you know, on alcohol or, or tobacco or drugs. It turns out uh, less than 1% went towards alcohol and or tobacco less than wow. 1% of what they used uh, of what they used the money for most Big of surprise it, help people yeah. alleviate their depression and they'll stop self-medicating. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a great point. Um, I mean, one of the biggest contributors to drug use and to alcohol dependency is poverty. Mm -hmm. So if you take steps in order to alleviate poverty, then you actually have the added benefit of fighting against addiction to both drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Big shocker. <laughs> um, so one of the criticisms of this study is pointing out the fact that it is a limited amount of time. So there was this, mm -hmm. uh, there's this one economist that pointed out the fact that although the results of these, of this study is really, it, it is good news for supporters of universal basic income. It is important to note that um, this doesn't account for uh, the fact that, the people knew that this was a temporary benefit. Mm. So the argument then is you wouldn't want to drop out of the workforce if you knew it was only temporary. But I would push back against that by, say, by pointing out the fact that you had an increase in overall employment and full-time employment, yeah. you know, even among people that didn't have jobs. Yeah. So again, it provided that extra cushion it's mm -hmm. more money on top of uh, on top of what they would make from a decent job. 
So yeah. I just I just don't think people are going to be satisfied with uh, with just five hundred bucks a month, mm-hmm. you know, or even yeah, a thousand bucks a month. Yeah, and and the argument one argument I'd make is like just a very anecdotal or kind of personal one. Like for the for people in like my uh, in like my group, my social group, like I don't think any of us would go and accept working half time for half the money. Like the idea that like we would just go and like not work and be satisfied with making less money is, is silly. That's not actually like why we're out here working. We're like yeah. working to build lives and build careers and people like people want that. So the idea that someone's going to be like, ah, great. I can now afford a leaky roof and a bicycle with one wheel and I'm totally satisfied is like, yeah. it's really rather silly. And one other thing is that I, I, another study I was reading was a meta-analysis of a bunch of different studies, um, and and they they correlated all these all these results together. And one of the things they found was that in cases where um, employment employment was negatively affected, so in groups or 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 pilot programs where employment went down, it was because um, so first of all, it was specifically among like uh, usually like single mothers or teens and then they and they used that time not being employed to do things like care for their children attend school and so what they found was that like overall like infant health increased and uh education and and standardized test scores increased so like not uh, having people not like required to work in these groups that we want to enable them to do other things besides just work in an economically gainful way is a good thing. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, one of the things that I, I actually recently saw that I thought was so stupid was, uh, so so Carl Rove was mm-hmm. on Fox News arguing against the direct checks. And one of the things he was complaining about was basically, oh, well, this is going to, you know, this is going to all these people like that don't need it. Like it's going to students. <laughs> and it's like, Dude, what? You mean all students don't have rich mommies and daddies to pay for their (laughs) education? Apparently, apparently. Yeah, you you do realize that there are some countries that straight up give all students stipends in order to go to school. And it actually Mm -hmm. helps their overall success because they're able to focus primarily on their studies and not on economic hardships. But that's another good point. Like a universal basic income would mean a hell of a lot for students mm-hmm. because they could focus. So, so employment shouldn't necessarily be the only measure of success here. Like yeah. the, another measure of success is the fact that there are a lot of students that will be able to focus on their studies. I mean, I teach at a community college. I can't tell you how many times I've had students who have had issues completing assignments or have had to miss classes because of work mm-hmm. and they have to work because that's the only way they can afford to go to community college. Yeah. I remember when I was in community college as a stupid idiot, young kid, I was like so proud of my grade point average. Yeah. And then I realized that everybody around me was doing all the work I was doing plus a job, yeah. many of them plus kids. Yeah. It was like, it's pretty easy to be academically successful when when you are uh, supported, when yeah. you have the ability not to not to r- like run yourself ragged, 
just trying to to get a toehold on life. Yeah. So yeah. this would also have so let's very briefly talk about the price tag because you mm-hmm. know the classic argument that's going to be brought up by conservatives is of course how are you going to pay for it? Yeah. I mean, of course, a question that is suspiciously absent when we're talking about tax cuts for the rich or spending on the military, but Neither whatever. Here nor there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the overall cost uh, of Andrew Yang's universal basic income plan, which again is a thousand bucks a month uh, to every adult in the United States. And um, with also the stipulation that if somebody is on some type of welfare, uh, they could choose between the universal basic income and their welfare, which again, I understand the criticism. In fact, I, I think, you know, that's something I might even label as a legitimate criticism, but at the same time, we're not taking away from anything. We're just adding. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so let's assume that this is the plan that we're looking at. All right. The cost of it would be approximately $2.8 trillion a year. That's a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, for sure. So the way that Andrew Yang proposed to pay for it, um, which, by the way, he refers to the uh, to the universal basic income as a freedom dividend, um, which I, I love the, that framing. Uh, <laughs> he proposed a value added tax of 10 percent on the production of goods and services and also a higher capital gains tax and the removing of the social security tax cap. So as it stands, like at a certain point, capital gains tax is just like taxed at a flat rate, Mm -hmm. which is stupid because it's basically saying that if you are making income from an investment, then you are going to, then like you get to pay less in taxes than someone who makes it from working. On one hand, it's supposed to incentivize investing. But on the other hand, it basically means that if you have a billionaire who is making billions of money because he has a bunch of investments, they're basically going to pay a flat tax rate, which is completely stupid. It should be taxed the same as income. So yeah, especially for, especially for this reason, investing in something like the stock market doesn't actually provide capital to the economy. Yeah. It doesn't. It, it, you're not giving money to a corporation that they use to finance their operations. All you're doing is owning shares of a, of a corporation. So like, yeah. there's not, it's not like, like incentivizing people to go out there and invest money in the stock market is a huge economic benefit, except for the benefit of everybody else that's in the stock market. Yeah. So all of those taxes make perfect sense. Uh, another argument that the Yang campaign makes uh, in order to cover the rest of the difference is basically that um, because this would give people a cushion and make it easier for them to seek better employment. It would end up increasing the overall tax revenue of the economy, Mm -hmm. which would end up, you know, which would add more revenue, which would add more ability to pay for, um, the, uh, the freedom dividend. Yeah. So that's how it would be paid for. That's the price tag makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, I mean, and it is a lot of money. Let's be clear. Like $2.8 trillion is double the current discretionary component of the U.S. budget. So all of our military spending, all of our Homeland Security, all that stuff, it's double that. So so that's a lot of money. But the idea that we that, that money isn't 
already in our economy in various forms, and that it isn't worth redistributing significantly is crazy. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat of the Week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Michael, our asshat this week is Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson. Ron Johnson. Ronnie John, come on down. (laughs) So what did Ron Johnson do to land it on our show? So you know how he's a senator, which Mm -hmm. means that he was in the Capitol when it was being stormed by Mm -hmm. insurrectionists? Ah, yes. Um, You know, that were beating police officers, spraying them with chemicals, beating them with flagpoles, and even Mm -hmm. killing one of them. Yeah, I I remember that all too well. Yep. So he had a few things to say about that particular, uh, about those particular rioters. So he was on the, uh, I think it's the Joe Pags show. Joe Pags, that's, I I, I think that's how it says, how it said. I I mean who cares fuck him. Uh, <laughs> uh it was it was a radio talk show. And he said, quote, "Even though those thousands of people that were marching to the Capitol were trying to pressure people like me to vote the way they wanted me to, I knew those were people that loved this country, that truly respect law enforcement and ne- and would never do anything to break the law. So I wasn't concerned." would never do anything to break the law. <laughs> they committed high treason. Yeah, anything less than and I was so wrong. <laughs> yeah. After that. The only the only way to make that statement better is I have never been more wrong in my entire life. Yeah. Which would be quite a bold statement considering he's a Republican. But anyways, <laughs> yeah, that that's but he, crazy. But he actually but you know, in 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 the spirit of fairness, he mm-hmm. did make sure to make a point about um, what would happen if the shoe was on the, the other foot. Mm-hmm. So he said, quote, Now, had the tables been turned, Joe, and this could get me in trouble, had the tables been turned and President Trump won the election and those were tens of thousands of Black Lives Matter protests and Antifa protests, I might have been a little concerned. Wow. Mm. Wow. And you know what's hilarious? Later, he actually said, well, I had no idea that this would get such a reaction. You specifically said this is going to get you in trouble, dude. You knew that this was a stupid thing to say right before you said it. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Also, just like, oh, oh, my God. I knew that these white people marching violently on the Capitol weren't so scary. But if they'd been black people, boy, I would have been scared. (laughs) I also, mean, Jesus respect Christ. law enforcement, respect the law. Are you, they killed a cop, you dumb shit. Yeah. They killed yeah. a cop. They beat him to death. Yeah. Like, like yeah. They had no respect for the law. They were chanting, hang Mike Pence. They were literally trying to get Congress to do something that was illegal. Yeah. And unconstitutional. Like, they, like, they don't have respect for any of the institutions that you purportedly support, Mr. Johnson. It's like, these idiots were trying to get you to do something illegal. Black Lives Matter protests are trying to protest against cops doing things that are illegal. And they're the scary ones? Yeah. Look, there have been some Black Lives Matter protests uh, here and there in which there have been individuals that have committed acts of violence. And we've condemned that on the show. But there, wa- but there have been plenty of reports, plenty of studies that have shown that 
I think the number was like uh, almost 95% mm-hmm. of Black Lives Matter protests across the country in the wake of the George Floyd murder were peaceful. Yeah. And also, like, let's, let's also remember the fact that a majority of violence, of, of, of politically motivated violence in the United States, and this has been heavily studied, you can mm-hmm. look it up, is committed by right-wing political activists. That yeah. is just a fact. That is yep. just a fact. Yeah. There's a reason that like that right-wing terrorists are listed as one of the major threats, domestic threats uh uh according to like the Department of Homeland Security. There's yeah. a reason for that. And well, to be fair though, to be fair, if you're in Ron Johnson's head and I'm sure he's a huge racist, it's way scarier when it's the black people that are coming into your white house. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's way scarier when it's the black people saying please stop shooting us than when it's the white people chanting hang the vice president. Yes. God. You're absolutely right. Ron Johnson, you are the worst. Ass Hattie Galore. Uh congratulations to Ron Johnson for being our Ass Hat of, of the, the Week. week. Alright. Today we are joined by social worker. Uh, current delegate representing the the 31st House District of Virginia and a candidate for the Lieutenant Governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, Delegate Elizabeth Guzman. Delegate Guzman, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, no. Hello. Uh, thank you, everyone. Thank you for the invite. To dive right in, we're uh, super excited to talk to you today. We're super excited to talk about um, your run for Lieutenant Governor. Uh, to kick off, we'd love to talk a little bit about your time um, in the General Assembly. And to start off, I wanted to ask kind of a general question about how your uh, career and all the incredible things you've done as uh, a delegate and as a social worker um, have have shaped your legislative priorities since you've been in the General Assembly and how that might tie into your, your work as Lieutenant Governor. Thank you, Michael, for that question. And I think it's extremely important. When I decided to run in 2016, you know, I've I've seen and I've lived a disconnect in between our representatives with the regular ordinary struggles for from ordinary people in the Commonwealth. And as soon as I heard speaking the incumbent of my seat then, who never held a town hall or sent me a newsletter. Mm what type of legislation he was fighting for. I, you know, I remember when I started this race, I couldn't even pronounce his last name. <laughs> and, but I, it was just easier to me to see that he was not fighting, for example, for public education. And he was not fighting for criminal justice reform or public transportation. As a matter of fact, he didn't know that in Prince William County, I mean, on the 95 corridor, we have the worst bottleneck of the country. But the country, so he it was a, he was living in a bubble, so he didn't know what he uh, was happening. And for me, I think it was easier to go on the doors and talk to voters and share with them my vision about what delegate has to do. It was always accountable and transparency. And I said, you know what? When I come back for re-election, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold town halls, and I will come with my report card, and it will be up to you whether you think I should continue serving you or not. And you know, and I learned, you know, that the struggles that I had many years ago when I came to this country was were still the struggles of so many people in this Commonwealth. 
and poverty did not have a race or a skin color. Mm-hmm. You know, the struggle was real. The amount of people are looking for access back then to health insurance, like through Medicaid, was real. You know, I heard so many people selling their homes because they have to pay medical bills or many moms that had to leave their professional careers because they couldn't afford to have childcare. And that was my reality, you know, when I was talking to them, when I uh, shared with them that what I wanted to do is to be their voice in Richmond so we could fight for the priorities that we care about the most. And then we were talking about public education and how Republicans in the majority for so many years wanted to defund public education, including, you know, getting rid of the Department of Education. <laughs> they, didn't believe, they didn't think it was necessary. So I think many people didn't know him. He was representing only 16% of the population because that was the last turnout when he was elected. Mm. So take my case, you know, and talk to voters. They were very surprised that actually a Democratic candidate was coming and knocking in their doors. And the uniqueness about my district is that it's not only incredibly diverse, but I represent parts of the only majority minority county in the Commonwealth. But at the same time, I represent Fauquier County mm. with more red and rural. So when I was knocking on doors in Fauquier County, people, it's like, are you a Democrat? Is there a Democrat running? Am I, am I going to be able to have Democratic representation in Fauquier County? And I say, yes, ma'am, if you get out and vote, if you get out and bring your family members, your co-workers, your neighbors, yes, you can help me make history. Mm. And, you know, I had those conversations. I was able to flip many of those bipartisan households where we have females that are Democrats and the husbands were hesitant, they're Republicans. But then once they got to know to me and they knew I had a vision about this job, I was able to defeat an incumbent of 16 years and flip my district red to blue uh, after 26 years. And that's where am I today? Yeah. Um, one, one very specific issue that you kind of alluded to there, uh, is workers' rights. So one of the things that you have definitely spent a lot of time talking about, uh, that was a major achievement that you had in, I believe it was the 2020 session was, uh, ending the prohibition of collective bargaining for public sector jobs. So why was that such an important accomplishment? Well, you know, as a second generation union member myself and a public sector employee for so long, I have seen how the lack of voices from employees at the table during the decision making process in the public sector is is not helpful. You know, there is always this group of senior managers that make the decisions or the agency directors that make decisions based on what they are learning in school or what they have learned in other jobs. So uh, collective bargaining for me was empowering employees, Mm. able Mm. to be part of the conversations because many people talk about salaries, you know, we are going to overspend paying our uh, employees and it's not about that. It is about including your employee during the decision-making process. Like Mm. for example, if would that, a specific county government is uh, looking for buy new trucks for firefighters. Don't you want to have the firefighters uh, during that conversation so they could actually tell you 
what uh, give you an assessment of the equipment that they are using today and what are they looking for? And they could help you make that decision uh, process. You know, oh, when you're talking about the schools, don't you wanna test these softwares that you're gonna buy and making investments of millions of dollars to get the feedback of the teachers, just to see whether those are gonna work in the classroom or not. That is what it's public uh, sector about. And, you know, and many people said, oh, my taxes are going to increase. No, actually, you know, if these employees are going to uh, have good paying jobs in the public sector, because that once we see that the public wouldn't be a public sector without, you know, the job and dedication of public sector employees, and they are compensated fairly, then they're gonna reinvest their money in their, in their communities, you know, where if they go and do their grocery shopping, they're gonna go out with their families and eat. So that's what the public sector uh, was about. I, I think that it was clear to me that was the first priority as Democrats that we needed to deliver to tell unions, you know, we are with you. Thank you for believing in us throughout the years. Uh, but we wanted you to know that this is going to be a priority and we were able to get the support, you know, from the speaker and the leadership yeah. in the caucus. We had to do some work with a few members, but at the end, you know, I, I love my bill. We, uh, we invested about four months uh, designing the draft. We were able to get the support of the current attorney general who was actually, you know, uh, in the conversations about the definition of the bill, he came in support of that collective bargaining bill. And then it was a new topic for many of my uh, colleagues in the house. So it was my job, you know, to educate them and to tell them what, how we will improve the lives of public sector employees. Now, house wanted, it wanted an inclusive bill that would not leave any workers behind, even creating, you know, a board and administration mm. that it will be, under the governor's uh, administration and the secretary of the administration so they can provide an oversight. But unfortunately, we did not have the votes in the Senate and then which is a different world. Mm -hmm. And then once you are there, you know, is that what can you get? And I always like to, I have these ideas and these bills that will help 100% of a certain group. But sometimes if I don't get the votes in the Senate, it's a decision about, whether I just give up on everything or I will take what yeah. is before me so I can improve the condition of 20% of these workers or leaving it up to localities as well. Because I think the localities also need to value the, their, the employees, that they might not uh, live in those districts, but actually are providing the services that taxpayers are paying for. So it should be very important and relevant. So yeah. now it, you know, may, starting May 1st of this year, it's going to be part of the law. So I'm very excited and being able to speak with a few localities already across the Commonwealth and talking to elected officials at the local level, educating them as well of what collective bargaining is about. Yeah, so definitely a major step forward. But, uh, but as you acknowledge, there's still much more that can be done within the Commonwealth of Virginia in order to protect unions. One of those, and this is definitely something that I wanted to uh, get your thoughts on, is uh, Virginia is still a right-to-work state. And Democrats have been in charge for, for two sessions, but we're still a right-to-work state. So why? Like, it's in the Virginia Democratic platform. 
why hasn't the General Assembly just gotten it done yet? Hmm. Well, uh, Nathan, I can speak for myself because I can talk for my districts and I know I have casted uh, my, I casted a vote to support it during the 2020 session because it actually went through the labor committee and then it went to appropriations and it was never heard. Yeah. This year it wasn't docketed. Now, I'm not the patron, so I could not tell you exactly what was the process. But what I could tell you is that when I reflect on what I did uh, in my collective bargaining bill, I tried to build coalitions, not divisions. Mm -hmm. So the first thing, as soon as we got the majority in November, probably a week later, we created the labor caucus. Mm -hmm. It was a few legislators that we, I, I've, make them feel that they were vested on this legislation and they have a voice at the table. That it was not only my priority, but it was their priority. And then we move on to the speaker. You know, throughout the campaign trail, I was talking to her the importance of collective bargaining. I'm not the champion of the bill, so I cannot tell you exactly how that dynamic worked because I'm not the patron of the bill. But what I could tell you is uh, for those members that are still reluctant, you know, to support this piece of legislation, Repealing the right to work is what we did for the public sector. It's very similar. You know, one, the collective bargaining is for the private sector and the right to work is for the private sector. Now, if we have some union busters out there that are trying to change the narrative that it will, you know, businesses will leave Virginia, you know, that is not correct. That is not true. And actually there are many businesses, you know, that are not unionized, you know, like for example, and I will use my campaign stuff as an example, you know, many people will tell me, uh, hey, is your campaign stuff unionized? And I'm like, that's not something that you impose. There has to be a desire and need of your employees that number one, do not have a voice at the table and do not feel included in the decision-making process that they will have, and they will come and tell me Elizabeth, I, we want to unionize, of course, 100% I'm in support, mm. but this is not a marketing item. We're mm. talking about people's work, people's jobs. So I, I've been using, you know, this opportunity when I talk to donors, when I talk to Democrats, to educate them. And I think as Democrats, for those who believe in it, what we have to do is a lot of education, trying to build coalitions, get to speak with those members, now expose them by creating division, but actually you know, talk to them, talk to them and educate them so they feel comfortable about. But mm -hmm. I see that once we do this, Virginia, it's gonna improve uh, their uh, ranking across the country about mm -hmm. rights. Because let me tell you, being a union person, a pro worker legislature is not something that I'm proud of, of being the 51st in the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um so I want to go ahead and shift gears and talk about your run for lieutenant governor because I know that you're really excited to talk about that specific here. Um, so the first question I have about that is, so in Virginia, um, the lieutenant governorship doesn't necessarily work exactly like the governorship. So the governorship, you can't run consecutively, but in lieutenant governor, you can. The current lieutenant governor is not seeking re-election because he's running for governor. However, if he were seeking re-election, would you still be running in this primary? I believe so. Yes, I would. I, I would have been running. So what are, what are some of the critiques that you would have on, 
on the job that uh, Fairfax has done, uh, Justin Fairfax has done, and um, overall overall democratic leadership uh, in the Commonwealth of Virginia that that would lead you to feel like you needed to run? Well, uh, because what I wanted to see is that what I observe is that the lieutenant governor has been treated as an outsider in the Senate. Hmm. It's because the person cannot introduce legislation and many of the senators, and I will not name names, called me and said, you're an amazing legislator. Hmm. You wanna go in the Senate and you won't be able to introduce legislation. So I could say that I wanted to be an active caucus member. I will not take no for an answer. And I said many times that when I win this nomination and when I win in November, the first person on my Rolodex is gonna be the majority leader. Mm -hmm. I wanna give him a call and tell him that I wanted to be an active caucus member. I deserve to be there because I'm a statewide elected official and I'm a mm -hmm. Democrat. So I wanna be part of the policy conversations. What I observe is there's not this connection in between the members and the lieutenant governor that he's only included when his vote is needed. Hmm. I don't want that. That is not my vision for the job. The job is I wanna be an active caucus member. I wanna be the voice of the working class because there's a serious disconnect in what happens in the house and what is going on in the state Senate. Many of our pieces of legislation gets watered down or killed in the Senate. And we represent the same constituencies. You know, mm. many of us, you know, share precincts with senators. And maybe because we are more often on the ballot and every two years we have to be on the doors trying to make our, case to, our cases to be reelected. Or many of them were not challenged during the last cycle. So they didn't need to campaign. <laughs> uh, what is the disconnect? So mm. I wanted to bring the voice of the working families so we can pass progressive legislation house, but also uh, out of the state Senate as well. Yeah. And that's what I would say I would run because I have seen, you know, I have not seen that, uh, that coalition building in between the Lieutenant governor and the state Senate where they are working together. Mm -hmm. And he's part of that conversation because otherwise there are certain pieces of legislation that I wish I could name right now, but that it could, it could have, you know, affect the lives for those who look like you. You know, there are pieces of legislation that were killed in the state Senate that would have improved, for example, the lives of the communities of color. So mm. how could that happen under umbrella? You know, you, I am very proud to be Brown and my last name to be Guzman, but if I'm not gonna be there, to fight for, uh, to improve the lives of those who look like me, mm -hmm. then I should not be in public office. Mm -hmm. And that's how I see it. I think, I think that's inspiring. Honestly, like throughout all of your, throughout everything you said, there's been this consistent theme that I've noticed of building coalitions by educating people about the practical, like things that are really mattering to their voters. And, and by proposing these like, these actual real common sense type solutions and telling people about why they can work like that that seems like the theme of when you took your delegate sheet uh, seat from the incumbent um, that seems like it's going to be the way that you're going to help run the senate which is like i can't imagine a better way to be an active member um, of the caucus in the senate so so as you know looking forward as lieutenant governor what do you view as your like top priorities when you get into 
that position for trying to, to make sure that with the, that, uh, you know, what are the top policy priorities that you want to see get done once you're in, once you're Lieutenant governor? Well, in the first, we have to make sure that all of the bills that come out of the progressive house of delegates mm. sit out of the Senate. Yeah. You know, and we have seen that that is not happening. And I would say public education, ensuring that we have uh, from universal pre-K uh, for all of the three and four year olds here in the Commonwealth, investing in K through 12, paying our teachers the salary that they deserve because there is not a way <laughs> to get there if we don't pay our teachers fairly and the way that the salaries that they deserve. You know, the Commonwealth is the eighth wealthiest state in the country. And for our teachers to be, uh, I mean, below average is not acceptable. So that has to be a priority. And then when we're talking about higher ed, I said also in the past that your eligibility uh, to a loan should not determine what your future is should be. Mm. You know, have to invest in a college. We are doing the first step through the G3 bill, but it's going to be uh, you have to be in poverty. And when we're talking about poverty, you, you would say, oh my gosh, these people is really struggling. But the reality is that if you are going to be a family of three making more than $60,000 in Virginia, you will not be eligible for the G3 program. So therefore, there we have a long way to go. And I would like to see investment also in vocational and programs because the re I have children, you know, and all of my children are different. And I want them to have options as they graduate from high school. Some people is ready to go to college as soon as they graduate. Some people, they're not. So, but they should be able to get, participate in a program where they could actually get a high paying job. So I would love, education will be my priority number one. I would love on criminal justice reform to see as uh, legal, the legalization of marijuana sooner rather than later. I just, it really hurts me when we have to wait to 2024, mm -hmm. not only because of it's the right thing to do, but all of the money that we're leaving at the table that we could actually <laughs> yeah. invest in public education. So yeah. I think uh, that is just one example of the many changes that I would like to see on criminal justice reform on workers' right to definitely getting out of there, the repealing right to work, you know, and making sure that everyone who gets a contract in Virginia, it's gonna be through a project labor agreement. So we could actually uh, protecting people's lives because it's about safety, it's about mm -hmm. training, it's about knowing how to do the job. And if this is a government, it's gonna be a government project, then we should own it and making sure that everybody has access. And right now it's optional. So I would like to not be optional, but actually be the norm. And finally, I would say protecting the environment. You know, uh, we don't have to wait to 2035 to go to 100% renewables. Mm -hmm. We do it before, and I would like to do it, you know, as soon as possible. And if possible, 2025, and I would end by saying with broadband access. We have uh, made a huge step this year. You know, we had some pilot programs going on in different localities. So we're actually now empowering localities to go and find outside vendors. So they don't have to be waiting only for those, these huge providers, you know, of internet where you have to negotiate and put up money. We're saying, you know, if there's a vendor out there that could work with you and is ready to work with your locality to provide broadband access today, you can do it. And the SEC is going to allow it. 
but I would love to see, you know, broadband access to everyone in Virginia, hopefully by, tw- by the end of 2023. Absolutely. Interesting. Um, so one of the one of your big themes so far that you've mentioned is uh, specifically as Lieutenant Governor working with the Senate in order to uh, in order to help embrace more progressive legislation. And one of the one of those uh, pieces of legislation that you've supported in the past is a Medicaid for all system. So. Uh, sell me on that. Uh, wh- wh- sure. wh- wh- you know, why, like how, <laughs> Absolutely. how does Medicaid for all system work? Well, there is an option through Medicaid, you know, and I don't want it to steal people's standard. I think that Delegate Samira has been a champion on providing an option of a single payer through the system that we have today. So I think that's the way to go. But I would start by making sure that all of our federal delegation also supports Medicaid for all. Because care is a human right, you know, and it's not a privilege. But I think there are options within the Commonwealth right now and the systems that are in place where we could actually find a single payer system. Mm. I'm I'm, you know, that is one example that he introduced that legislation last year and he didn't give up. So he understood that it's going to be a study this year around. So next year, we're going to be ready to provide that system. But we have to work with what is before us. And I think I have done that, you know, this year, undocumented pregnant moms will be able to have, for example, prenatal care. They did not have that before. And what is more interesting to me, Nathan and Michael, is that by doing the right thing, the right thing, the federal government gave us more money. So the Commonwealth is going to invest $2 million and we're going to get $7 million out of the federal government. So we're going to, these are items that I have fought for three years, you know, and I don't, you know, once again, it's about building coalitions. It's about educating. So I'm excited that now we, that is the law that our seniors that are Medicaid recipients as well will have access to dental care. And when I was making these statements through my colleagues in the Health Welfare and Institutions Committee, I said, yeah, if we provide dental care to seniors, the federal government is going to give us a rebate. They couldn't believe it. And they're like, yeah, and these are the numbers. So it's the right thing to do. But I am excited that we will get the data and the study that we need to provide a single payer. But there is an option to do it with state resources. And that's going to be our way to get there. While we wait on the federal government to act, you know, on having a program that will have where everybody in this country will be able to get access to health care. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sort of adding on to that, uh, one specific group within healthcare that uh, I was very happy to see prominently featured on your website is the disabled community. Uh, I actually um, am disabled. I am on the autism spectrum and I'm accompanied by a service dog. Um, so one question that I would have for you is what ways would you say that Virginia currently falls short in taking care of the disabled community? Oh, it took us too long. You know, I would start by saying that, you know, there is these programs where we provide uh, disability waivers, for example, for people, people who are in, within the disability community that they do not have the support systems at home or they are um, growing up and their parents are aging as well and they cannot take care of their children. So they are eligible for more uh, resources. And we had a waiting list for many years and it has not been a priority. 
And this is people who live under poverty, yeah. who have a disability. So yeah. I will start with that. There is priority one, but we have not been able to fulfill our commitment even to get rid of 100% priority one DD waivers. And they are priority twos and priority threes. And as the years go by, those priority twos are priority ones because people are aging and they need the resources. Another part was the federal government have uh, tasked the Commonwealth that by 2023, we have to have at least 5% of state employment with people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And we are right now under 1%. And it's two years away from now. So yeah. I have, I am proud that I have been working for the last three years to provide hiring preferences with people with disabilities when they when they are going to pursue a state employment, and that is on the, its way to the governor's uh, desk. But I think that we have failed the disability community since these children are in school. Yeah, because we have not provide we have not made a priority. Uh, to provide the resources that individuals with disability needs in, need in a school. And there are so many stories that I have seen and heard and learned about, for example, what is students with disability are, or who have autism, that they go you know, through seclusion in, for their learning experience. That's what they remember when they were in school. You know, how I'm gonna, uh, this child not only I'm not going to teach him anything, but actually, you know, since it's disturbing my class, because we don't, we have not identified the resources that we need because it's special and it's unique. I'm going to put him in an office by itself so he can Mm. be quiet and don't learn anything. I think that the Commonwealth, we have failed the disability community in school age. Many of these students have been bullied and we have not addressed those either, you know, and that is not acceptable. It's not acceptable. So I finally, the Department of Education have got incited for the lack of resources that we have for students with disabilities in, in the public education system. So I am glad that we have started the conversations, but we need to do more because yeah. even those having an IP, you know, which is an individualized specialization plan for these students with disabilities is so hard. And yeah in the county that I represent, it shouldn't be the case that for if you live in the eastern side of the county when there is more Title I schools, you have to move to the western side in order to get more resources and yeah. more services for your children. That's unacceptable. So yeah. I'm proud you know, to be serving as the Vice Chair of Education and to call out those who have neglected the disability community because I'm a Democrat, but as a Democrat, we also have to recognize our weaknesses. And that is a huge weakness and deficiency for many years, and we need to do better. Uh, Madam Delegate, I know that you do have a debate to get to. I just have one more uh, quick question. So Virginia is kind of a recently blue state. Uh, I remember when it was solidly red uh, in, in my own lifetime. And what would you say to uh, Democratic primary voters that might be listening and hear what you say and think, man, I, I really like what she's saying on policy. I really agree with her, but I'm kind of concerned that she might be going too far and she might not be able to win in a general election. What, what would you say to alleviate those potential concerns? Well, I, I could tell them that in my time in the legislature, I have passed 
25 pieces of legislation, which is more than any one of the delegates who are running for a statewide office, mm. the Republican side and, and the Democratic side. Mm. So I am not scared to take on Republicans on the floor. And as recent as of last week, I had a debate on the future of education and uh, with a Republican candidate who is the front runner on the Republican ticket right now. So I want voters to know that I am, I'm gonna be the candidate who's going to work the hardest, not only to win my primary, but also the general election. As a proud person of color, I've never taken things for granted. I've always have to fight and work twice as hard as anybody else, just uh, to make sure that I, I accomplish what I need. But the good thing is that when people uh, are not aware of your, what you are capable to do, then when you accomplish something, they are like, wow, I did not see that coming. So that's what I see that it's going to happen. You know, I think that at the end of the day, I see the Lieutenant Governor uh, job, a promotion for an effective legislator. I see that this is a promotion for a proven leader within the caucus and within the party and also in the professional lives, you know, and I think I can bring that to the table uh, by having a successful professional career in government, by having the credentials of two master's degrees uh, that will equip me to do this job well and be knowledgeable and prepared to take on uh, the Republican in November. I think also that I, uh, since I got to Richmond, I had the opportunity and I wanna thank my colleagues who believe in me, who elected me first as the chair of the class of 2017, which was the most uh, diverse and progressive class of delegates in Virginia's history. And they elect me as the president. And now that we are in the majority, I am proud to serve as the vice chair of education, the chair of the subcommittee of social services, and being a voice for the people in every role that I do while I'm elected. And I, that's what I wanted to do. I wanna, and within the party, well, I'm proud to be elected to be the first Latina immigrant, not only to serve in the Virginia assembly, but also to represent Virginia, the Democratic National Committee. And how I did it, it's by reaching out to every zip code in the Commonwealth. Mm. Because this campaign is not gonna be about where I live, which is very, as I heard, as I shared with you earlier, my district is incredibly diverse. I'm, I'm one of the few rural uh, Democrats who represent rural Virginia <laughs> in Fauquier County and uh, a Trump County. But you know, their voices matter. And that's why I have taken fights also outside of my district. I have been fighting with people from Buckingham County to fight the exploratory uh, part of gold drilling. I've been fighting with people from Hanover County to push back against uh, Wegmans that it will destroy the legacy of an African-American community. So I, I visited already more than 40 counties across the Commonwealth to make my case. So, and once I, and this that's what this campaign is going to be about, talking to people. This is a grassroots campaign, people powered. And what, what we did in 2017, we're just gonna amplify it and do it statewide. We're going to empower those minority voters that were not included in the process either. I'm able to connect those as well. So I'm excited that I can speak their language and I can talk to them about the importance of their support and the importance to participate in this election. So I want people to, uh, Virginians who are maybe hesitant that I will not be able 
to win in November, I wanted to tell you that I am ready. I am ready and uh, to with my to with my accomplishments and I'm qualified to do this job. And I hope you can earn your support starting April 23rd uh, in the primary and and then in November. So yep. we can protect our trifecta. We have been talking to a social worker, a delegate representing the 31st House District of Virginia and current candidate for Lieutenant Governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, Elizabeth Guzman. Uh, if you liked what you heard from Delegate Guzman uh, and you want to support her campaign, her website is elizabethguzmanforvirginia.com. Uh, Madam Delegate, best of luck on your campaign and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity, uh, Nathan and Michael. I really enjoyed this uh, interview and now I'm fired up. So look forward for those who are gonna join in a debate later on that debate is to come. Please watch them and I, I hope I can make you proud. And now to close out our show, rather than doing our highlights this week, um, we will be taking a moment of silence for the eight people who were recently killed in uh, Georgia uh, by a, uh, a gunman. Let's not forget about the horrific impacts of gun violence in the United States, and let's not forget about the fact that Violence against the Asian community has increased significantly in the mm. last few years. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week.